Okay, so for today's event, so um, the Public Policy Committee is the um, committee that's putting on this event today, and the title of the event is What Issues Are Shaping New York City's Futures? Future. Um, our speakers today are two people who have a lot of expertise um, in New York and all things sort of um, government and public policy related, um, and as well as economic and other um, things that affect our business community. Nate Bliss, Vice President, um, Development and Construction at Taconic, is responsible for development projects, including managing project timelines, zoning, <coughs> entitlements, budgeting, design. Um, so thank you, Nate, for joining us today. Uh, Kathy Wild is President and CEO of the Partnership for New York City. Uh, Kathy is um, the Partnership for the New York City is a leading business organization. Its mission is to work with government, labor, and civic sector, and the civic sector to build a stronger New York with a focus on education, infrastructure, and the economy. Thank you, Kathy, for joining us. Uh, so Kathy's gonna start off with a presentation, uh, and then it'll be followed by a Q&A um, interview with Nate and Kathy, and then we'll open it up to questions for the audience. So thank you. Thanks, Mark. So we'll keep this informal, I hope. As uh, Margaret said, I am president of the Partnership for New York City. Uh, we are business working in the city's interest. Some of your companies that are here are members, so you can keep me honest. Uh, I think the, uh, the business community uh, deserves a lot of credit for the state of the city economy, which is very strong. We have uh, an annual economic output of $991 billion. We're 5% of the national GDP just in the five boroughs of New York City. Obviously, the regional economy is even stronger. We have an all-time high of 4.9 million jobs in the city today. And we've seen a 22% growth in jobs over the past uh, 10 years. So we've had a big, we've had a big increase. We have a strong economy and, and a prosperous economy. Um, the, we've also had success in diversifying our economy. We're still very dependent on Wall Street and the financial services industry, but it's a more diverse financial services industry that includes the fintech sector uh, and other areas. Tech is our fastest growing sector. It's still only 8% of our economy, but it's obviously the most important sector in terms of attracting talent and uh, supporting the entrepreneurial side of our economy, which has been an exciting part of watching over the last 30 or 40 years the diversity, the diversification of our economy where the entrepreneurial side of it with more than 9,000 tech firms as well as the traditional small business community has been uh, has been so strong and so vibrant. So we're no longer just a top-down corporate headquarters economy. We're much more than that, which is important. The other thing uh, is that we've diversified geographically. So all five boroughs have been growing at an important rate. 69% uh, of the job growth has been outside Manhattan. Um, and of that, 34% of the job growth uh, has been in Brooklyn alone. So there's a, there's a big change in what were historically, uh, really since the since industry left at the end of the 60s, the, uh, the manufacturing districts left in the, at the end of the 60s. This is um, 
these were bedroom communities for a number of years, or bedroom and hospital communities. And today, this really, the boroughs are really a great source of economic strength for the city, which is very positive. Um, so our university and cultural institutions are thriving. Obviously, tourism, at least until this last couple of weeks, uh, is doing well. Um, crime remains low. Be, uh, in spite of some of the conversations lately about the impact of the bail reform, which I'm happy to talk about if you want to talk about that in more detail. Uh, in the education area, we've, uh, we've really seen advances in the public schools. We think a lot of that has to do with mayoral control of the schools, which started in 2002 under Mayor Bloomberg, has continued under Mayor de Blasio, and it has made uh, the focus on education and students, much less political, much, uh, much stronger focus on kids. And we're up to over a 75% four-year high school graduation rate, which may not sound like much in the public high schools, but it was stuck at, uh, in the 50s for many years. Similarly, we're at 55% of the students are testing college ready which uh, the, the students graduating are testing college ready, which um, was for the last 30 years stuck in the low 30s. So there's a, there are big improvements in the education system that I think we're sometimes slow to recognize. Um, the transit system, you've got uh, more of a view in terms of the improvements. It was so bad in the summer of 17 that it was you know the, the summer of the great subway crisis, and since then we've seen uh, real activity, thanks, uh, I think, in large measure to the governor's focus on transportation, uh, committing a $51 billion budget for investment over the next five, in the next five-year plan, and, um, and the progress that's been made, I think, will continue despite Andy Byford's demise. Uh, I think there's a, a new attitude at the MTA. We've been, we've been working with them for the past two years. Um, Everyone was invited in during the summer of 17 to try and be helpful, and we thought that, you know, for years, sort of the bureaucracy of the transit, trans, transportation system had been stuck in the past, and companies from New York were helping uh, transit systems all over the world upgrade to the 21st century and really not doing much here. So we've worked with the MTA, and now we're also working with the Port Authority, DOT, and the other transit agencies uh, with the Transit Tech Lab. So there's kind of a back door for the private sector to bring innovation into the MTA. Um, we're in the second round of, uh, of that uh, second year and second round of that effort, and we're doing the, the MTA and the other transit agencies are saying, here are the things that are really bothering us, here are the problems we're having that we're facing, and then we do a big global advertisement for firms that are doing that work, most of them early stage. They're coming in and they're kind of, rather than having to spend three to five years in the MTA procurement process and probably never, never getting to the end of it, um, they're now coming in through this Transit Tech Lab, getting to do pilots and uh, do a 12-week testing of the, uh, kicking the tires of their products to see how they work. Um, some of them, for example, are uh, the um, predicting breakdowns in buses. Uh, a Swiss company came in and actually is now on a one-year pilot where they have an 85% success rate in being able to tell a bus is going to break down before it happens. Um, for those of you who have been on a 
broken down bus or stuck behind one. You appreciate that. Um, and number, and in, that's another. This year, one of the one of the competing areas, which is uh, the Port Authority and DOT, is looking at uh, management of the curb which, as we all know, has become a bigger and bigger problem, not just because of bike lanes, but also because of trying to get buses to move and trying to deal with Amazon, Fresh Direct, et cetera, deliveries. And so th these problems that used to take us years to figure out how to, how to even approach dealing with them through the procurement process are now being solved on a more timely basis. So I'm very optimistic about the direction of transit in the city uh, after uh, and I think, I think that will continue. Um, on the negative side, um, I would say that the, the, the downside of having tax revenues be so strong in the city and state because of our, um, our thriving economy, thank you, but the tax revenues have in fact uh, driven uh, the worst instincts of the politicians to spend more money, uh, make more uh, commitment. So the, uh, the, city, uh, the city budget alone has gone up 36% since Mayor de Blasio been mayor in the, in the last six years. Um, as you know, it's easy to commit new money. It's very hard to retract it. Uh, an economic downturn will, uh, will create some issues uh, for the city in terms of the, the expectations that people have. Uh, employment in the city, the uh, city employees have gone up 10%. Uh, it's now uh, 326,000 employees of the city of New York. So it's a, it's a big nut in terms of expenses. The state had the advantage of, of having a lot of bank settlements coming out of the financial crisis and the, the regulatory crackdown. So the state had almost $9 billion of play money for the last um, few years since 2009-10. Um, those are one shots. So the state has gotten kind of spoiled. This year, the state's facing a budget deficit because of the increase in health care costs. I mean, it's attributed to Medicaid, but it's basically that the, state, uh, the state's largest expenditure is Medicaid, and that is, uh, that's going up because of health care costs. And then also, as you've been reading lately, it's, it's kind of been consolidated, but the state is also facing... Uh, and the city are facing significant cuts in federal funding, whether it's on the infrastructure side, the pullback from doing gateway, whether it's the tax side, which is the state and local tax deductibility being lost, which is probably causing New York State taxpayers $14 billion a year in additional federal tax payments. Um, and all of those things are having a, will have a long-term impact on New York State that are, um, are concerning. Uh, other areas of concern, we have on any given day in New York 300,000 job listings of jobs that are available but not being filled. Uh, there are two reasons for that. One is the skills gap in terms of our, our institutions, uh, particularly our institutions of higher education, are a bit out of touch with uh, preparing students, especially the public uh, school students who end up in CUNY and SUNY, the public universities, they're a bit out of touch with what the job demands are today, so there's that side of the gap. There's also been, in the last three years, since 2016, there's been a 43% reduction in the number of immigrants coming into New York City. As most of you know, historically, our population increase has been based on immigration, um, and so this is a big change. I mean, we're lucky in terms of the tech communities attracting a lot of young people and domestic 
in migration from around the country, so we that's kind of that's made up for it. Uh, but it hasn't entirely made up for it. And over the long term, the restrictive immigration policies, the difficulty in getting green cards, et cetera, has a huge impact on New York City, which is scary. 44% of our workforce in New York City are first-generation immigrants. 52% of our business owners are first-generation immigrants. So, um, so long term, and not that long a term, immigration policy will have a huge impact. Um, the, the biggest challenge, though, that we face uh, today is not an economic one. As I say, economically, we're in pretty good shape. It's a political one. Uh, this can be traced to, in June, it'll be two years since uh, AOC was beat Joe Crowley in, in an unprecedented political event. And since then, uh, politicians have been uh, competing with each other to see who they can blame. And basically, it's big corporate and real estate. So that's, um, that presents a political challenge because uh, both the city council, the state legislature, and the executives are looking for what they can do to show the people that they're clamping down on the very things that are responsible for the city's prosperity. So that's a, it's a frustration. They will, you know, when you get behind closed doors, the politicians will wink and nod and say, we know. But that really doesn't help when, um, when it doesn't translate into public policy and legislation. Um, some of the most dramatic of which has been both uh, increases in mandates on employers that have increased the cost of doing business in the city on the one hand, and on the other hand, the real estate uh, regulations and in terms of the, the rent laws, but also importantly, increasingly, uh, rezonings, including those supported by the mayor that are, that are necessary for affordable housing, for economic development, for continued economic growth, are being rejected uh, at the city council. Um, and it's, it's sort of anarchy there. Nobody's, uh, the mayor has not vetoed one action taken by the city council <coughs> since he was mayor in the last six and a half years. And so they've kind of run amok. Um, that's a big concern as well in terms of what our future pattern of growth is. So on that note, uh, and, and, and a good example of this is um, just over a year ago, Valentine's Day last year, you recall Amazon pulled out of New York City. Uh, we were to get their HQ2. Uh, the governor, the mayor, and 82% of, of the public supported Amazon, yet a relatively small group with facile access to social media and very willing to play on the fears, particularly immigrant communities in Queens, were able to sabotage that effort. Um, and that is a pattern that we're seeing over and over again on rezonings and other activities. Projects that would have seemed like motherhood a few years ago, like Industry City in Brooklyn, are now anathema to that, the neighborhood, saying this is fueling gentrification, this is fueling potential displacement. So you've got a scary political atmosphere in the city. Populism is rampant throughout the world, uh, throughout the country. But here in New York City, it's, a, it's, a, um, it's very different from how we have operated in the past. I remember when Occupy Wall Street was going on downtown, um, the uh, Richard Trumka, the head of the AFL-CIO in Washington, came up and wanted to do a giant march of organized labor working with the Occupy Wall Street anarchists to march down Broadway, uh, decrying Wall Street, et cetera, et cetera. The labor unions in New York City in 2009 said to Trumka, no way. 
we depend on Wall Street, we depend on the financial services area. They said, we're not marching. And the whole thing basically fizzled out. Um, today, I don't think that would happen. Uh, we're in a very different political climate. It's not the pragmatism that, uh, that New York has historically had in diving its political agenda. It's not what got us out of 9-11 and the rebuilding effort. It's not what got us out of the urban crisis of the 70s um, or the crime crisis of the 80s. That was, those were very practical, reaching across the aisle efforts, non-ideological efforts. That atmosphere has changed dramatically, and I think that's the single biggest challenge we face. The, the solution that we see to that is that the uh, is that the private sector, the business community, must mobilize the, uh, the workforce, educate and empower the workforce. Uh, in the last mayoral primary, only 14% of eligible voters came out to vote in the local elections, 14%. Um, if that happens again in 2021, we're gonna get the results we deserve. So, we need to, what we're working on at the partnership is to try and, and encourage employers and the companies in the city to include in their corporate social responsibility activities, which most of them have focusing on global issues, the environment and, other, um, and uh, financial inclusion on kind of a global basis. We're trying to get them to take on as part of the corporate social responsibility local issues, local community actions, and empowering their employees to understand we're putting up a website, a whole platform where people can register to vote, where they can learn who their elected officials are and what their positions are on various issues. Uh, two weeks ago, we had a citywide uh, career discovery day where employee volunteers from 186 corporations, including some of those who are here, Skanska, CBRE, uh, Seville's I think is here, um, all took, uh, we had 6,000 10th graders from public schools across the city come into the corporate setting and find out about the jobs that are there for them. Uh, one, of the, uh, one of the arguments against Amazon, one of the fear tactics are, sure, Amazon's going to create 24,000 jobs at 150,000 salaries, but they're not for you. They're not for your kids. We have to change that conversation. And that really falls on the business community to be able to do that in a way that we haven't done. You know, our, the, most of New York's business community has been globally focused for the last 20 years. So this is the hope that working with their employees and all the polls show that, uh, that employees want their companies to engage in local issues. They want that support. They want, they want, uh, they want to hear from their employers and from the, from uh, business, business, uh, the business community about what the issues are. So we are hopeful and we are, we are working on that engagement. We did a survey of, uh, got back 14,000 responses from employees in the, at the end of uh, last year, hearing what their agenda issues are, and you won't be surprised, 94% are concerned about the rising cost of living in New York City. Uh, transportation, uh, cost of housing, um, and uh, homelessness and poverty are, are their top concerns in terms of what's going on in the future direction of the city. That's the agenda that we're gonna try and lay out and support and work on a nonpartisan 
bipartisan basis, so this isn't a political mobilization in a partisan way. It's really to try and get people to engage locally. I think if more than 14%, if substantially more than 14% of folks actually go out and vote in local elections, this city is going to be a lot better off, and I really think that's the only way the corporate community can constructively address the generation of political problems that we're facing. So that's my pitch. So my turn to ask a few questions. Uh, hi, or everyone. Or make statements. Or, <laughs> uh, maybe I'll do a little bit of both. Uh, Nate Bliss, uh, now with Taconic Partners. Uh, previously, I had a long stint uh, with the city. I was one of those 326,000 employees uh, working at the Economic Development Corporation, uh, where I was on the front lines of advocating for complicated, politically charged rezonings and other actions. Um, and my last project, before I, I departed EDC, was Amazon HQ2. Uh, so I did have the opportunity to engage directly with uh, the local Long Island City community and those who uh, came out around that project and got to witness firsthand uh, what you're saying um, about the moment that we're in. Um, I was at EDC for long enough to uh, remember a time when going to a outer borough central business district and saying there's the prospect of bringing 25,000 jobs would have been a slam dunk. And where diversification of the city's economy and moving away from our reliance on, uh, on fire, uh, moving towards tech and other sectors, uh, really would have been uh, an uncontroversial and indeed heralded thing. Um, and there's a lot to, to go, go into about that project. Perhaps we will, perhaps we won't. It's all a little painful, frankly. Um, but um, but I, my first question to you, Kathy, is are we in completely unique times here? Or is there any moment in New York City's history that you can point to or in your, your long-serving long efforts at the partnership uh, that you would liken this moment to as it relates to the political challenges that, that we're facing? Well, I've only been in the city for 50 years, so I'm not going <laughs> to... There is a great book by Russell Shortow called Island at the Center of the World. If you haven't read it, I highly recommend it. And it's about how New York City's peculiar character as being a center of commerce and tolerance and diversity, um, and it, which really is, if you look at it, quite unique to New York and pragmatism came out of the Dutch settling here, the Dutch Renaissance. I, was, I had breakfast the other day with the CEO of the Hudson Bay Company um, and had suddenly realized that they, they were here <laughs> long before. Um, and, and I think that that culture has, is, is pretty, the practical culture is pretty unique in New York. There were um, eras just before I was here where the Trotskyites and this one and that one. Apparently in the 30s, after the Depression, we had ranked choice voting because we've recently put that back on the ballot, so we're going to have ranked choice voting again. And somebody said, be careful what you wish for because that's what brought out the Trotskyites and the, we had all these extremists. So I guess there was a time in the 30s based on what I was told. But otherwise, no. I think it's pretty unprecedented. It's certainly unprecedented in the last three generations where we've had good constructive working relationships where where there was an I, I think term limits had a huge impact 
um, on loss of long-term vision of what's in the interests of the city. Um, more than people understand, I mean, many of us were, were in the, were supportive of term limits, thinking that somehow it was gonna be a solution. Um, people said it would empower the, uh, it would empower the staff. That was a criticism of it, was it, it would empower council staff because the council members would be short-termers and be gone. But what it's done is everybody is looking for their next job from the time they get in there, of, of the elected officials, and playing to every advocate. And the council staff, as far as I'm concerned, the staff has been disempowered because the advocates are writing all the legislation. And usually they've gone around and gotten 35 sponsors before uh, anyone else, before there's a public hearing, before anyone's seen the legislation. So it's, um, so I think that's contributed too. It's not just the whole populism post AOC thing. I think term limits was a horrible mistake. <laughs> <laughs> so so I, I wonder, um, you know, you started your, your, your presentation, Kathy, with uh, some pretty incredible stats about the progress that the city is making. Uh, we have record employment, we have record number of jobs, we're growing in the outer boroughs. Um, in many ways, the city is doing very well. Um, I'm wondering, maybe just to get be, be under this question a little bit more, what is it about the growth of the city that we've experienced recently that makes it such a threat or is seen as, as, as such a force to be resisted by folks in communities. Why are we leaving communities behind? And is it a matter as, uh, you know, I think a few recent um, high profile projects might, might suggest that people do not see themselves or opportunity for themselves in the projects that are coming to their neighborhoods? Um, in the 80s, when the city was just coming out of near bankruptcy, there was tremendous fear of gentrification and displacement. In the 70s, we lost a million people, mostly middle class flight. Um, and in the 80s, the people that were left here were very scared <coughs> of what would be, um, uh, that, they that, they, that there was no place for them here right. and that they wouldn't be able to afford to stay here, et cetera, et cetera. And fortunately, there was from the federal government really a program to the revitalization of cities that supported the community development movement and created community-based organizations and housing programs and empowered intermediaries like LISC and Enterprise Foundation. <clears throat> and we had a real network that the, um, and the city didn't have any money, which, uh, so they needed the private sector and they needed the local nonprofit sector to help them bring things along. I mean, it was the neighborhood groups sold the houses we built and got tenants. I mean, they were the ones that sort of created the Back to Brooklyn movement. And the, the, this all came sort of organically out of supporting communities. So the impetus for development and growth and support for projects like Amazon was coming from the communities. Um, in the last 20 years, that infrastructure has basically been allowed to uh, disintegrate. And the advocates that I meet today, and I came out of that community development movement, that's how I got my job with David Rockefeller in 1981. I had 
been the head of a nonprofit mm -hmm. community organization. Um, so, uh, so I knew that very well, and then we used that infrastructure in the 80s to be able to do the renaissance of the neighborhoods. And every neighborhood that had a community development corporation that worked with us, and CDFIs, community development financial institutions, yep. the whole thing. And the programs from Washington all the way down uh, focused on that. I mean, that was, a Jimmy Carter started it, actually, with a guy named Gino Baroni, who was a priest that he put in charge of communities. And they put money into it and support for it, and Ford and Rockefeller and all the foundations did. We, we've blown that infrastructure. And now the advocates from community, it's all negative. Uh, it's what are you doing to me, not how can we work together to build our neighborhood. Yeah. And I think that is just a horrible uh, situation. And I think we have to rebuild that community infrastructure and support and find ways that the community-based organizations can once again partner with developers on the end, with planners and with service delivery systems. Um, and that we have to, that our housing programs have to incorporate them. I mean, our biggest affordable housing program is 421A, by far our most expensive. There is no role for a community in 421A. Whereas the programs of the Koch Cuomo Housing New York all had roles for community mm -hmm. development corporations to own, to manage, to do supportive housing, to market the units. There were roles, and they got reimbursed for it. And they were able, they were able to afford, therefore, to be sort of the constructive force on the ground in the neighborhoods. Mm. That doesn't exist today. Yeah. Or it exists very, most of them are what they can get paid for is social services sure. and advocacy. That's interesting. Do you think if, if uh, the latest large housing debates uh, that have reshaped our markets, I'm thinking back to mandatory inclusionary housing and ZQA, which were two city uh, planning-led initiatives, and then the 421A debates, which certainly were loud, um, but not really, didn't have much of a community touch point. If those programs were instead uh, if the focus was instead on a sort of distributed community infrastructure around weighing in on issues of policy, or if people saw the output of those efforts, which actually are pretty significant tools to create new affordable housing, uh, would there have been more understanding, comprehension, and support for those efforts? Um, well, most of those, uh, I think the focus has to return to neighborhoods and community building, not to transactions. And if you can reshift the conversation, so we're not talking about numbers of units, but we're talking about the strength of neighborhoods. There are some good initiatives coming out of community now, like legalizing basement apartments. I mean, we have a, a sunk cost and an asset, what do they call them now in the fuel industry, stranded assets, of lots of housing with senior citizens' homes in my neighborhood in Bay Ridge in Brooklyn. We have all these large homes with one senior citizen wandering around in them. We haven't programmatically said, how do we work with the senior citizen organizations and create an infrastructure in the neighborhood that can put more people into the physical assets we have and accommodate the demand and we're not so this is a there's a pilot going on now 
uh, that came out of an effort of some of the immigrant groups in Queens to say, how do we get a program that legalizes, fixes, makes safe, creates the secondary means of access for basement apartments? That's, that's a logical thing. It's coming out of community. Now, is it going to produce a large number of big projects that the private sector is going to get excited about? No. <laughs> so is anybody paying attention to it? Eh. But that's, that's the way that the immigrant community is say, say, they recognize we've got a lot of people living illegally in unsafe conditions. We've got a lot of need. There is an affordable alternative here that we could all, when I moved to New York, I moved to Battery Plaza in Brooklyn, or Battery, now I work on Battery Plaza, <laughs> I, uh, Battery Place in Brooklyn in a basement apartment where um, the woman would come down to her laundry room and walk right through my apartment and I've left, if I left dirty dishes in the sink, she would wash them, my landlord. Um, wow, <laughs> now that's a landlord. I mean, but that was, but that was community. Sure. We don't have that sure. going on in sure. the same way. So I, I want to pick up on a comment uh, that you made uh, a little ago about partnerships between real estate industry and community. Uh, and specifically around the issue of housing. And I assume I'm talking to a room mostly of real estate professionals here. Uh, and, and this is one in which the conundrum of the sort of politics of the moment and the true problem that collectively we are trying to solve, really there, there seems to be a real gap there. Uh, we have an affordability issue in the city, no doubt. Uh, cost of, of living has increased. Um, but by many measures, we are undersupplied on housing. And that's, uh, there's a, a need to produce. I think by all measures. We need to produce more housing in order to solve uh, the, the, the problems that face us. We also need to make sure that incentives are appropriately aligned for continued maintenance of the stock that we have. Production and preservation is, uh, you know, the cornerstones of uh, every housing policy dating back many administrations. Uh, so how... It seems that our recent legislation, everyone I'm sure paid attention to what happened in Albany last session, uh, was very much around the preservation side of that argument, uh, about ways to keep stock affordable and low, without probably enough consideration for how to incense owners to continue to invest in those, uh, in those assets. But let's talk a little bit about production. Uh, and why, or perhaps can, we get a coalition uh, in the city again around uh, seeing new housing production as a way to solve our problems as opposed to something that is a threat? Well, I, again, I think that that is, um, that has to be something that communities see as production for them that advances their objectives um, and, and not that is going to simply raise rents and bring in outsiders and make it, make it more difficult for them to move out. I mean, so uh, the, the production conversation for the last 20 years has really been focused on, as I say, units rather than neighborhoods. And I think that's, yeah. that's the mistake. I, I, don't, I mean, I said it before, what, and I do think that there are, clearly under a program like 421A, and given the land costs now, I mean, we live in the 80s, land was free. The city owned 60% of the land in Harlem, in Bed-Stuy, and 
the Bronx, in the South Bronx, it was probably more than that, uh, land and buildings. And so that was the equity asset. So a nonprofit could go in and develop um, with a program that provided financing and with, um, as we developed the values in the neighborhoods, because we had, I mean, they couldn't at first because we had negative value, but we went in with the banks and, um, and we had a major part of that program, the part that we ran at the partnership, was home ownership. And we built home ownership housing and basically had people, uh, individual home buyers, many of them moving out of NYCHA projects, put down a down payment and then waited two years while their house was built. And that became the equity that was used along with the developer's personal guarantees, so, so that had to do that because the banks wouldn't take anything else but their personal guarantee of repayment of the construction loan, and, um, and free land. Mm -hmm. And that was how we financed it. Now, the free land part of that is obviously gone unless you look at, and we haven't, I mean, for how many years? This started like in the third year, fourth year of the Bloomberg administration. We still haven't pulled it off. Uh, we've been said, well, there's lots of parking lots and empty land around public housing. Uh, why aren't we taking right. advantage? That's free land. And we've got, same thing is true of Mitchell-Lama housing, which is uh, state or city public land that could be available. Um, we haven't been able to do that for political reasons. Yeah. And it's because nobody trusts anybody. And that's because this community infrastructure that's trying to fix things, that's part of the solution, is gone. We have to rebuild that community infrastructure. And I don't think we're going to solve this problem until we do. Yeah. You've got to be able to go into the neighborhood, have trusted local people who you can say, be our partner in putting this together. I don't think that's something the private sector usually can do on their own. There are exceptions, but I think in most cases it required intermediaries. It's a role that we played at the partnership. Uh, it's a role that a LISC and Enterprise paid and Supportive Housing Corporation and other nonprofit organizations with special needs housing played where they kind of put the team together yep. and dealt with the interface. So uh, some of that still exists. Community Preservation Corporation is strong, but most of their work is now being done upstate instead of in the city. Yeah. Um, uh, Lisk and Enterprise have strong national programs, they're spent, they're do, but they're doing more in workforce development, some commercial activity, et cetera, than they are in housing. Yeah. It strikes me that one of the, the places where that conversation with community often happens around the trade-offs of inviting new developments and the improvements to services and amenities that happen are around rezonings, around large-scale rezonings like Essex Crossing, which is now, of course, going up. Taconic's happy to be building part of that out. But that rezoning happened seven or eight years ago. Seven or eight years ago, correct. <laughs> it's uh, not very today. Different times. <laughs> Uh, but there have been instances, and I, I got to work on downtown Far Rockaway um, and East New York rezoning. Um, not easy, not easy conversations. The last by any three stretch. have been have run into problems. And then the last three, and, and actually, this gets me to a, a question that I'm sure is on some people's minds here too. We've now had a few instances in the past year of uh, judicial intervention uh, around uh, land use actions or as of right projects, um, and it's hard not to sense a bit of a theme. Uh, between 200 Amsterdam just in the past uh, two weeks with a judicial ruling that uh, uh, 
20 stories may need to be knocked off this building, to the uh, invalidation of the Inwood rezoning, which was after years and years of yeah. planning and it duly authorized through the city and council And had the approval, support of the council. Yeah. Had the support of the council in that instance. Um, so are, are we, is there a trend here? And what do we do about this moment in which uh, not only is there a threat to future development that requires public approval, but potentially even the as of right infrastructure that guides so much of real estate in the city? Yeah, I think there's a lack of trust. I, th I think it's lack of trust is equally, um, and, and, and I think the judiciary is a reflection of the political environment, yeah. inevitably, whether it's the right or the left. Um, <laughs> it's said. both right now, but uh, no, I think that the um, the salute, the uh, legal issues are going to are going to take time to. They're not. Gonna, they're going to be a reflection of this negative, polarized, polarized environment yeah. until we fix the root causes. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to turn it to the audience in just a moment for questions, but I want to switch off this doom and gloom of politics for a second and ask you about um, some back of the... Back to the economy? Back to the economy, yes. <laughs> um, yeah, some of the, the sector strategies that you're most excited about at the partnership. Uh, again, the economy is humming. We are more diverse than we've ever been. Uh, where, where do you see opportunities for continued growth uh, in, in sectors beyond uh, finance, maybe even beyond tech? Um, well, New York company, New York is a headquarters city, industry leaders of more sectors than any other city in the world has, you know, for, uh, across the board. And they are the first adapters of the next generation of technology and, um, and of product across the board. And I think that will continue to be our competitive advantage. That's why we are beginning to eat Silicon Valley's lunch when it comes to attracting talent and attracting business. And it's because this is where the market is and we're no longer, you know, we're not the center of building chips, whatever, but we are the center of where things, of apps um, and, the, and the adoption of apps. And that's where things have moved in that economy. Um, I recently had, or in the last couple of years, have had a company from Germany that's over here that has, um, that's furthest ahead in the world on the flying cars. Hmm. Um, and we'll take them. They want, they want to be in New York. They realize what a pain in the ass we are, but they want to be here because <laughs> the market is here uh, for, flying, for their flying cars. And if they can get it here, then they've got a global product that will go, that will go everywhere. Um, obviously, the financial industry is a huge part of that, and it's a little scary to um, have everyone lambasting billionaires since um, everyone in the financial industry wants to or thinks they're going to be a billionaire someday. Um, <laughs> we want to keep them here. We don't want them going to Florida or wherever. So, um, so I think, that, again, the political dynamic comes in. But from an economic standpoint, we're where everybody wants to be. When we have these competitions in fintech, um, we get applications from hundreds of companies all over the world to come here for our fintech innovation lab, where we've got 47 global leaders from the finance insurance world who are working with these companies that win this and helping them refine their product. And, many of them then embracing the product and developing it. Same thing is true in life sciences, where we've got the, um, the 
top research institutions in the world, the biggest cluster of research institutions in the world, but we've never commercialized it until the last couple of years where we finally got efforts by the city and state to create a commercial cluster, which, um, which is having a big impact. We've gone from having zero incubator accelerators to having five that are serious players, Johnson & Johnson sponsoring one, Cambridge Labs sponsoring another, Accelerator from San Francisco is coming down the pike. We've got, I mean, we've got a lot going on in life sciences, which I, I was out at the opening, or the groundbreaking for a spec building in Long Island City, 275,000 feet yep. of, uh, by the top, uh, the guys that did. Um, it's King Street. King Street, what, what was, what was the, what square? Kendall Square oh, yeah. in, uh, yeah. I blank out other cities and other stuff. <laughs> Boston, um, <laughs> Cambridge, no. <laughs> Who needs it? Well, we've got a lot going on. Yeah, yeah. no, that's great. Um, so, so to say nothing of New Lab and the Brooklyn Navy Yard and advanced manufacturing sure. and robotics and quantum and, I mean, all that stuff too, which no one ever thought New York City would be at the forefront of. Yeah. Um, back to, uh, to HQ2 for a second. I think it actually was a real endorsement of the city uh, that after a long process, uh, ultimately the decision was made by the company that they, they really did need to be in New York. They liked Queens, which we liked also, diversifying uh, location. But there's a lot, it, to me, a, a lot of it comes down to talent, accumulation of talent and the fierce competition for talent that is so many business sectors these days. Uh, so let me just uh, ask a, f a final uh, question before I open it up to the audience. Um, you mentioned this a bit in your remarks, and we spent first parts of the conversation talking about the unique times we're living in. How has um, the partnerships advocacy evolved over time? Uh, and second part of the question, for, for those in the room who clearly care about the issues facing the future of New York City, that's what's the title of the panel, how can um, folks best stay involved and best advocate their interests and positions going forward in New York? Well, unfortunately, our advocacy has become increasingly defensive, which isn't a pleasant way to advocate, but that's kind of where we're at. Um, I'm hoping we'll be able to turn that around, um, but, uh, but that's the truth. And, um, and I think that we also, we also have to re restore trust in the private sector in a way that um, is going to take real work. And, and I think, it's, I think it is, um, we're trying to do it through collective action to say that, you know, if you look at the philanthropy and the outreach and the good works of all the companies and businesses in the city, it's enormous, but it's highly undervalued, uh, not well understood. There are very few people that could say what it is. Um, and that's because everybody kind of is doing their own thing. They're kind of boutiquing it. They've got 10 summer interns. You know, we've got to have 10,000 summer interns as a collective story. So we have to do a better job of collaborating. I, I mentioned we did this career discovery week where we got 186 corporations to have 6,000 kids for the weeks uh, February 10th to 14th. And it was very, uh, social media wise, it was a huge success, um, which, because uh, the kids were going crazy with it. They really enjoyed it. So the 
high school of theater and arts was at Schubert Theater and going backstage and learning the learning the ropes there. And uh, just one example, Skanska had kids in hard hats and boots going through Farley. And, um, and there were a lot of, Pfizer had a game where you, competitive game where you name a drug and then, um, <laughs> and then whatever, what can I tell you? Then, uh, yeah. yeah, exactly. Go, it, it was. It go great. through the drug approval process and who would win. And um, Sotheby's had a mock auction where they gave each kid $600,000 in play money. And they were bidding <laughs> on these works of art. And what can I tell you? Anyhow, it was for a lot of these kids, it was their first time in an office building. And some of these office buildings are so dramatic that uh, these days that it was really, and then they had one-on-one -on -one interviews and the employees of the companies loved it. Because it, it was a real opportunity for them and you got a lot of volunteers who actually were people who came out of Brooklyn and the Bronx and whatever, whatever, and this was an opportunity for them to catch up with the current generation of kids. It was, it was a terrific event. But it was very hard to get companies who each have their own little thing in education to say, okay, we'll devote substantial resources to doing something where our name is not the only one on the sign. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> because, you know, that's the nature of philanthropy. You want to get credit for exactly what you're doing. And, but that is not going to make an impact unless we do stuff on a class. And I've, I've, I spoke to the Chambers of Commerce of Manhattan, Queens, Brooklyn, Bronx, Staten Island, I said, next year, you guys should join us and get the businesses in the boroughs to collaborate. We all do it the same week. And so we don't, there's 87,000 10th graders in the public schools in New York City. We got 6,000 of them. We should have many, many more. Absolutely. Everyone go back to your companies and uh, pitch this <laughs> idea, for sure. Uh, and and uh, I think one other point that you made earlier that I think personally is worth reiterating is engagement with our local elections, engagement with local issues, remaining advised, as uh, I'm sure folks in this room do, um, and, and, and keeping up on the issues. 14% um, uh, participation in local elections is not ever going to allow. Yeah, people don't participate because in this poll we did, or survey yeah. of uh, employees, it was either because they think their voice doesn't matter, their vote doesn't matter, or because they can't stand any of the candidates. <laughs> well, this is a self-fulfilling prophecy. You're not going to get decent candidates if they don't think anybody's going to come out to vote who will listen to their message. Yep. So um, remember that for 2021. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Great notes. Well, thank you, Kathy, for all Thanks, of your work Nate. over many decades, and thank you to the audience of Cornell. Many, many decades. <laughs> thank you, everyone. Thank you, Nate and Kathy.